Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome John Olegas to the show today. He is the owner and principal consultant for Options for Employees. He's a recognized authority in areas that are very complex to most of us. He's going to illuminate them. He began as a pension consultant. He's been an investment advisor, a stockbroker. And upon reading Ed Thorpe's books, Beat the Deal and Beat the Market, he became a market maker in options and a trader in San Francisco. He became involved in employee stock options in 2005. This is a market maker and an experienced professional who understands this entire realm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Olegas to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Kim, for that very nice introduction, and uh, I'm happy to be here, and I hope we'll have a nice conversation. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let me tell you how I heard about you. All right. I was at a GATA conference, a gold antitrust action committee conference several years ago in Washington, D.C., actually in Virginia, and I was having dinner and talking to this gentleman, and he started to talk about you, and the next morning handed me an article by Rob Kirby called A National Disaster. I had never heard anybody who had your kind of experience who talked about the kind of things that you talked about, like the massive buying of puts and the shorting stock in Bear Stearns, about how Bear Stearns' stock was artificially collapsed so that insider traders would make billions and J.P. Morgan would be paid $55 billion U.S. tax dollars to shore themselves up and to buy Bear Stearns at bankruptcy prices. I felt that that was uncommon. It's not all of what you're about because you have so much experience, but I thought it would be useful to call upon an inside person who has the training and experience and the knowledge who could bring us in to what is happening and to make very clear to us what is the value of having employee stock options in a scenario where... We don't really know what the executives are doing anymore, and there's been shenanigans in this area of employee stock options, which I know you're going to talk about all the different sides of it. So please talk about whatever you'd like to share with us right now. All right, Kim. In 1976, I became a what they call an options market maker on the Pacific Stock Exchange floor in San Francisco. I did that for five years, and what we did was we traded puts and calls. And what I used was uh, theoretical pricing models to determine which one was the, the underpriced and which one was the overpriced. And we would buy the one we thought was the right one to buy and we'd sell the others and do hedges and things like that. So I did that for uh, five years there. Now, that was right oh, shortly after the Chicago Board Options Exchange in Chicago started, which was the first secondary market in traded options that was created in Chicago and uh, started in 1973. And uh, right around that time, there was the creation of the Black-Scholes pricing model, which Myron Scholes and Fisher Black and a fellow by the name of Merton won the Nobel Prize for the Black-Scholes theoretical pricing model. So right at, we were in the beginning there, and I had a little background in uh, math because I had a degree from Tulane, and I had some experience as a stockbroker and an uh, investment advisor. And so I started to be pretty good at trading on the floor, although things were new in those days. And 
what the facts were is that very few of the traders understood anything about theoretical pricing models. And I and my, my good friend Blair Hull, we actually started a little company called Options Research where we provided theoretical pricing models to the public and other market makers. But that was started in 76. I stayed there for oh, four or five years and started. I hired a few little people and some of them went up to Chicago. You know, I went up there too because the game was bigger in Chicago. A lot of these market makers got their early stake playing blackjack and following Ed Thorpe's Beat the Dealer strategy, and he, he wrote another book called Beat the Market. You know, So they were all related, and I know I, I listened to uh, Ed Thorpe on your site or one of the related sites. Oh, you listened to Scott Patterson, who wrote The Quants? He was one of the people he interviewed. Right, right. That goes back to 1969 and even maybe a year or two before. So that's a long time ago. But anyway, I went up to Chicago and, and traded there for a good while. As a market maker, trading options, you're right in the midst of things as far as insider trading that takes place because that's where they go first with to cheat with their inside information. They go to the options, okay, because it used to be the case that when a guy abused the insider trading rules, he, he might have gone to jail. And there was guys like Bosky and Milken and, and Levine and people like that in those days where the SEC found that they were insider trading, arrested them, and threw them in jail. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> okay. But anyway, I had experience of being on the floor at that time when guys like that were coming in and doing insider trading. I want to bring you back for just a minute because I know you're going to be on a roll right now. First of all, I want you to explain to the public what a market maker does. Well, a market maker stands on the floor. At least in those days, we stood on the floor and made bids and offers for puts and calls. A put is the right to sell the stock, and a call is the right to buy the stock at a specific price throughout a specific period of time. So if I thought the stock was going to go up, you know, I would buy some calls because those were like substitutes for buying the stock. Instead of buying the stock, you might say, well, I'll buy some calls, which gives me the right to buy the stock, and if the stock goes up, my calls get worth more. And so anyway, I, we made markets. In other words, when I say made mar- make a market, I mean, stand on the floor and stand ready to do buying and selling uh, at a reasonably tight uh, bid and offer, okay? Now, a lot of that's electronic these days, and the actual physical floors have been eliminated to a large degree. Do you think that's good or not good? Well, I, I, it's not good for the market makers who used to trade like I used to and others. We had a chance of making a good bit of money. Because now it's dominated by, I call it the Walmarts of the securities industry. You know, they've knocked out of business all the little guys who are market makers. And it's just Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and, oh, uh, specialist firms who have billions of dollars and uh, no limit as to how much they can buy or how much they can sell. And they also, in my view, generally trade on inside information, however they get it. What makes a good market maker? Well, I was tall and I could shout loud, and I guess uh, I had a, a degree in math, so I had a, a, a little understanding of statistics and theoretical values and how they create those things, and just some experience in the business, and a guy maybe that uh, had some experience under pressure. Actually, I think I was like the ideal market maker, <laughs> but, but I was a little impatient, but anyway... Uh, there was times when you could make a lot of money trading as a market maker. And, of course, 
there were people that made a lot of money and then lost a lot of money. They didn't really understand all the risks they were taking. I don't really want to get into that because it's going to take too long, and I think it might be too esoteric. (laughs) So let's go back to employee stock options. What made you go into employee stock options, and what's your experience right now in that arena? Okay, well, supposedly there's 10 million people out in the United States alone that have employee stock options that were granted to them by the companies they work for. There's a large portion of those people that are in California, in in Silicon Valley, okay? Now, what happens is that the companies essentially contract with the managers and the other employees and all the way up to the top uh, uh, executives, the CEO, they contract with them to give them employee stock options in lieu of cash compensation or for a reduced amount of uh, cash compensation. So when you hear about all of these executives getting all of these large payoffs, it's not because they're just giving them a bunch of cash. It's because they're giving them employee stock options mostly or what they call SARs or stock appreciation rights or they give them restricted stock. Uh, there's a compensation committee, which is part of the board of directors, that grant these equity compensation products. And it ends up by people that work for, for example, Apple or Cisco or Google or Qualcomm. Or, they'll end up by having a load of either options, that is, Employee stock options, they'll have restricted stock and they'll have either, they might even have some stock in a pension plan or, or an IRA or stuff like that. So when we're talking about employee stock options, that's what uh, area I'm talking about. By giving out employee stock options, doesn't it dilute the overall stock of the company? It does. Yes. And there is a criticism of that, but essentially if they grant the options and the, the person exercises them, then the company, in fact, sells shares to the person at a price that's lower than the current market price. But the company gets cash for that, and they also get a tax deduction, both of which offset that dilution. And, it, and it, uh, they don't get diluted if the stock is, uh, is, not, is below the exercise price uh, throughout the time because they don't the employees do not exercise their rights to buy the stock at 50, maybe if the, when the stock is trading at 45, you see. So, yes, one of the criticisms of granting equity compensation and employee stock options is that it does dilute the total number of shares uh, or it increases the total number of shares and it dilutes the earnings. And so, but the thing is, the companies are not paying these people cash, and therefore, uh, there's a trade-off. You see, they're, they're, effect- they're effectively selling the stock to their employees at a beneficial price in lieu of giving them cash. I totally get that part. Okay, and so there's, there's criticisms of companies for giving large amounts of uh, equity compensation, and that's what you hear all about with all of these companies getting uh, their CEOs and the CFOs and the big executives, all of these large tens and twenties and fifty millions of dollars for uh, annual compensation, you see. And uh, so, but what I, I, I'm, 
I've written articles about that, and I made observations of how big some of these uh, payouts are, and I've, uh, you've seen some of those. Uh, for example, uh, oh, our, there was a, there were hearings uh, before uh, the Senate committees where guys were being questioned about uh, uh, their compensation, and you know, to me, these guys were outright lying about how much they got because they they diminish the value of those grants in in a way which they might be able to defend that if they were put under a subpoena or charged with lying. How's that possible? Isn't whatever's written down what's written down? You either have X amount of stock or you don't? Well, you see, there's a lot of uh, disagreement as to what the options are worth. If, you, if, getting a, uh, if you're loaded up with a million options, to buy the stock at uh, 25 and the stock's trading at 25. Well, what is it really worth? Now, there's theoretical pricing models that can tell you what it's worth in a theoretical sense, but, you know, uh, these guys can say, well, it's not worth that to me. You see, and so they can say instead of that being worth $5 million, they'll say it's worth $1 million. And so those guys who testified before Congress, and I'm talking about the CEO of J.P. Morgan and the CEOs of Citigroup, uh, Wells Fargo, uh, Morgan Stanley, they all lied in a big way because I know how to calculate it, and they have people that know how to calculate it too, but they just figured nobody's going to really question it. Okay, But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, I think generally uh, gr- granting all of these stock appreciation rights or, or options or restricted stock has been abused. And one of the uh, ways that's uh, in the public uh, domain about the abuses is what they call backdating. Backdating is when they might, ha- they might have had a formal uh, uh, grant of a million options to buy the stock at 30, and then, oh, a couple of months later, the stock goes to 25, and they say, well... Let's just change the date to make uh, now today's date the date of the grant. And so, yeah, okay. So they changed the date to 25 when they were really granted at 30. Who would be the one to change that? Well, that would have to be cooperation between the guy who's getting the options and the compensation committee and maybe some lawyers. And a lot of these people were charged with crimes out in San Francisco in the uh, – I think the FBI uh, convicted a few people there. And uh, but uh, I think nationwide there was uh, litigation and uh, and criminal charges all, all over the place. And now, as far as how many, uh, a lot of them were settled, I guess. But uh, but but that was the most obvious cases of it. And you know they couldn't really defend doing it. They they might have. Some people say, well, yeah, we did it. Uh, we changed the, the but we it wasn't illegal. But uh, but, uh, you know, they charged them with crimes anyway, and, they, and, and some were convicted and some weren't and some settled. But there's another way that they do that. You, sh- you see, uh, the idea is to really extract as much as they can from the company. All right? and, they, and they do. They know if they grant options with a lower exercise price. In other words, the lower the exercise price, the better for the guy who is granted the options. In other words, if the stock's trading at 50 
and you have the right to buy it at 50 for the next 10 years, well, that's worth a certain amount. But if you have the right to buy it at 40, well, that's worth quite a bit more. So they'd rather get it uh, where they got uh, the, they, they are granted the rights to buy the stock at 40 than the right, uh, the right to buy the stock at 50. And so you, you can see a lot of cases where very large companies now w- bought the stock or were granted options on the lowest price for the last five years. In fact, that happened to J.P. Morgan in, in, uh, 19, in 2008, 2009. Now, right at the bottom of the valley, loads of grants of employee stock options were granted to uh, the top executives. Okay, And so, uh, and I'm talking about uh, very low prices, uh, which uh, two years later, the stocks doubled or even more. You see, so uh, is it just an accident that they were granted these options right at the low? Well, it's harder to prove that they manipulated the stock down to accommodate the grants of these big executives than it is to uh, to catch them doing backdating. So, so they do that more than they. Okay, but but I I I'm just talking about my observations. I don't have any. Uh, real activity relative to that other than writing a couple of articles and uh also but but there are some people who watch the the previous times that the these options are granted in other words if uh options are granted uh to to people in uh, say the middle of march every year then what they try to do is anticipate that they they will manipulate the stock lower uh, so that they can grant these they can grant these options to them at an artificially low price and so if you can kind of get an idea when that grant's going to take place you can go short the stock uh, you know three weeks before and then buy it back when they grant the options because you're anticipating it to jump back up. Don't you think, John, that the entire options realm, the way that you're describing it being abused, the fact that that capacity is available to manipulate, doesn't that make owning a company and growing a company polluted from the get-go? Well, uh, yeah, assuming they're doing that. Now, that's not to say they all do it, but there's some very big companies that have been accused of it. And I'll mention uh, Google. And I can uh, I mentioned before J.P. Morgan, and you can find uh, a lot of them. You know Yahoo, for example. You can go back and look at when the CEO was granted the options, and you just see that it's right at the bottom of this uh, of the valley. And yes, they're extracting money from the companies, and that makes it such that if you're uh, an investor, you, you if you see what's going on, you're less likely to. Uh, buy shares in that because they're taking some of the earnings for themselves. John, how would an investor who's looking at investing in a company verify if this is going on? Is there certain books that have to be shown? Are the contracts accessible to investors? Yeah, yeah. You see, every transaction that officers and directors make has to be reported to the uh, SEC within two days, 
and you can find it on the Internet for free. In other words, if you're thinking about buying some stock in a company and you want to see how uh, the, the options or restricted stock or other types of equity is granted to the particular executives, you can go into uh, forums which are called, uh, for example, there's one site called SEC Form 4, the number 4.com, SECform4.com. Form 4 is the uh, form that they have to uh, fill out and report to the SEC every within two days of the transaction. In other words, if they're granted a million options on uh, January 1st, it has to be reported within two days to the SEC, and you can find out what they've done uh, up to, you know, uh, two days. In other words, you can find out what they did on January 1st on, you can find that out on uh, two days later, assuming, you know, two business days anyway, okay? So if you want to, uh, to understand what the executives are doing, you can go see uh, very quickly uh, the transactions they're making. Now, up till about uh, three years ago, they didn't have to report for maybe 30 days, you, you see. And so yeah. you, but now the SEC has passed the rule or they got to report within two days. I think in Europe they have to report immediately. Electronically, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all electronically. In other words, if they're selling a bunch of stock, which they got from exercising their options, Sometimes people say, well, that, that's a tip-off that I ought to be selling, you see. So you can find that out within two days, whereas four or five years ago, you couldn't find it out. And uh, uh, some people put a lot of uh, faith in trying to uh, do their timing about buying and selling, about observing what the, uh, what the executives are doing, you see, and that's, I think that uh, there's some uh, sharp people that are doing that, that are using that as a technique to try to improve the results, you, you see. And it all depends on whether it's kind of like trying to watch a cheat and see how he's cheating and betting on well, how he's betting. <laughs> that means you would need to be following the overall strategy, too, because you need to be watching it constantly. But the thing is, doesn't it put the executives in a different business than the company they're supposedly stewarding. It puts them in a different business. And even though they say, or the buzz is, about stock options allegedly align the interest of the executive with the shareholders, it's not true at all, is it? Well, it is. Uh, and I'm not saying that guys that have a bunch of equity in the stock, uh, whether it's uh, employee stock options or restricted stock, I'm not saying that, they, they're not aligned. And, and if you do, in fact, have a lot of stock, you are aligned. But they're trying to, to minimize the risk and maximize the gain for themselves, you see, while being aligned. And, of course, they're, uh, they're being able to make a lot of money requires that the stock move up quite a bit, okay? And sometimes uh, they... they uh, they might take upon ri more risky projects than they would otherwise, or somehow they might uh, manipulate sales and earnings figures to make it look better so they can now sell their stock because they know they play in the game. Uh, and I think uh, Angelo Mazzillo from 
from Countrywide was accused of that, and I think he settled uh, with the SEC for $100 million and, uh, or so. Uh, so, you know, you know, there are people, yeah, yes, they do align their interests, uh, and they, but they do try to make the most for themselves while uh, justifying it by saying, well, the stock's up, you know, and, and uh, you know, you've had guys that were at Bear Stearns that cashed in a lot of money before they collapsed, in the same way with uh, uh, Merrill, in the same way with uh, Lehman Brothers. You know, this guy, Richard Fold, supposedly, I remember before Congress, they were accusing him of having made uh, $450 million. And he had to correct the guy, the senator or the, the House of Representatives guy, in saying, I didn't make $400 million. I made $350 million. <laughs> <laughs> so, Isn't this uh, a conflict of interest, though? It appears to align the interests of the executives with the shareholders, but it can also be a huge conflict of interest mechanism. You're going to expand the stock you're going to bloat the stock the stock's going to go up you're going to make a ton of money you may take on risky projects in other words it may not be the best for everybody who's involved in the company there's a lot of discussion about that and i'm not uh, an expert on understanding or making that conclusion what i i try to do is i try to tell the few people that listen to me or not the big executives because they're, they're out there in their own world but i try to say to people that a managers that might have a hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, uh, shares or two hundred thousand, maybe up to a million dollars or two or something like that. Uh, I, I try to show them how that they could best manage those positions so that they end up with the most money for themselves. And it's and these guys. In other words, if you're not a CFO or you're not an officer and director, you might still have a, a good load of uh, uh, equity in the company, especially in these high techs that have moved up uh, over the last few years. Uh, you might have had, you might have started out with fifty thousand dollars worth of something, and now it's worth uh, half a million or a million dollars. So, uh, how do you manage that? Do you exercise your options and sell the stock? Is there, are there some risk-reducing strategies? And I contend they are. And what I try to do is I try to use the techniques we use as market makers, managing options and stock position by hedging. And that is, if you own a whole bunch of employee stock options or restricted stock, you're in a, quite a risky position. And because if the stock drops like... Uh, Bear Stearns did, or Lehman Brothers, or or uh, some of these high techs have done. I mean, uh, at one time, I think uh, you know Microsoft was over a hundred. Now it's in the twenties. Okay, uh, Cisco, uh, I think it was sixty-five or seventy-five. Now it's seventeen or eighteen. You, you see, so uh, if you're holding a bunch of options that you were granted, and the stock moved up nicely. Well, how do you manage that? Do you reduce risk? And you should reduce risk. It, or, you know, if you just, it, it, I guess it depends on the, the relative uh, amount that you have relative to your whole assets and things like that. But I try to tell people how to reduce the risk by hedging. And that is going and selling calls and buying puts and picking out the most appropriate one uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but the companies don't want people doing that. 
because it effectively raises the cost to the company. They don't, they don't want them to manage those options like professionals. Okay, and that's what I've been trying to do, and it's really it's a grind because the companies uh, put out the word that the uh, employees are prohibited from doing what I'm saying to do. But the truth of the matter is, when you examine the contract they have with the company, they're not prohibited. But there's all of these uh, subtle uh, shenanigans that, that go on with uh, these uh, options and restricted stock. And so, uh, you know, there's all of these misconceptions. And, you know, uh, I mean, your site is about uh, people having new ideas and, and uh, rejecting the old uh, mindsets and things like that. And so I, to some degree, I'm, I'm doing that. So do companies love you or they don't love you? The companies don't like me. <laughs> and uh, and the, uh, the employees are kind of afraid. They don't know the subject well enough. To, so what they'll do is they'll go to some advisor at the company, and the advisor at the company will say, no, don't do that. You know, we don't, really don't like you to do that. And they don't know whether they're allowed to do it as a matter of contract or not. And so they kind of go along with the company, and the company really just intimidates them. But anyway, that's life. <laughs> Got it. Talk about SEC Rule 16B like boy dash 3D3. Can you for a moment? Yeah. Uh, well, the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 uh, made it such that a uh, an op- a uh, officer and or a director uh, if he bought and sold securities of his company that he worked for or even the guys that might have 10% of the stock or more if they bought and sold within 6 months and made a profit any profit that they made uh is recoverable by the company. In other words, if uh, if a guy bought a million shares at twenty because he was doing it based on the idea that uh, there were some negotiations about the company being bought out, and he and so the stock might jump up five or six or seven, eight dollars, and he sold it at twenty-eight. And if he did that within six months, uh, SEC Rule sixteen B requires him to give that six or seven or eight million dollars back to the company. And if he doesn't, then anybody who owns the stock can file a lawsuit to try to get him to return that eight million dollars. Okay? Now the SEC doesn't enforce that and it's not a crime. But that is what sixteen B says. Now as companies started to do more and more of granting of equity to uh, the officials, uh, uh, loading them up with options or restricted stock. They want to grant them the options opportunistically. And then, oh, maybe right after that, the stock jumps up. Uh, He might have options that he had that he was granted maybe two years ago or he had some restricted stock. And so according to my reading of the law, uh, 
that if he was granted options and then he sold the stock that he had from years ago within six months, then the profit he made there is returnable to the company too. Okay? Now, again, if the company doesn't make him give up the money, anybody who owns some stock can go sue him and force him uh, to give up the money. Now, the SEC passed a, a rule, uh, which is 16B3, where they gave exemptions to companies uh, that, uh, th- that the grants that are given from the company to the employee is not considered subject to ru- the SEC, the uh, statute, that is the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, Section 16B, prohibits the buying and selling in six months. Uh, but the SEC accommodated these options grants and these other type of equity grants by passing Rule 16B3, which exempts grants from being part of uh, these the six-month uh, prohibition. So it nullified it, really. That's exactly what it did. It nullified the statute, and the SEC can't do that. Okay? Now, uh, Terry Semmel, who formerly was the uh, CEO of Warner Communications for 28 years, I think in 2001 he became the CEO of Yahoo. And he was granted a bunch of options, which I think my calculations were that it was uh, worth $100 million as a bonus to come work. Okay? And he, he got, a, uh, after the stock went down, he, they gave him a bunch more options, and that, then uh, they, gave, they went down some more, they gave him a bunch more, and finally it went up a bunch. And uh, he, he took away about $450 million from Yahoo. Okay, and I think that about fifty million of it was in violation of uh, of Section sixteen B of the Securities and Exchange Act of nineteen thirty four, and I tried to to get him to give it back. <laughs> okay, how'd you do that? I filed a lawsuit against him, and I bought some shares of Yahoo. I bought a hundred shares and sued him for fifty million, and uh, tried to get him to give the fifty million back. I did it right there in uh, federal court in San Francisco. They actually made me a little offer, which was small at the time, and I rejected it. And so Morrison and Forrester, which is one of the largest securities firm in the Bay Area, perhaps the biggest, uh, they had their best uh, securities lawyer against me. I couldn't find a lawyer. I couldn't (laughs) find a lawyer to do it because they were all afraid to be perceived as challenging CEO of, of a big operation in the, the Bay Area, okay? And so I had to do it myself. And uh, so that's why I learned a little bit about 16B and talk about it. But uh, just like you said, you, you thought that the 16B3 nullified the statute. And I, I made the exact same point. And you see, and so uh, I, I uh, the, the judge dismissed me by saying that uh, 
uh, the the, uh, the SEC rule uh, worked to uh, give him an exemption from doing this, and so I uh, I filed an appeal uh, to the Ninth Circuit, and uh, the Ninth Circuit stated which uh, that the uh, the granting of options because they they have a, a compensation committee who's supposed to be working on the behalf of the stockholders uh, makes it such that the likelihood of an abuse of the grant of options makes it such that the SEC is justified in giving them an exemption. And I told the Ninth Circuit that I probably traded more options than anybody uh, and I know that the idea is absurd that the uh, compensation committee uh, acting as a representative of the stockholders is going to uh, be uh, make it such that the likelihood of abuse is going to be great. And I and I, I said the you see if he'd have bought the options in the at the CBOE and then sold the stock, then uh, he would have been, uh, he would have come under the purview of 16B. But since he was granted millions of options, I think it was 2.9 million shares, uh, then, and he was, in other words, the, com- the company itself granted it to him, uh, they could have never got. I mean, he could have never bought that many options if he went to this uh, to the options floor because they would have faded him. They'd have bought other options. They'd have started buying the stock and everything else. You, you see, and uh, but <laughs> anyway, uh, I spent a lot of time on that one. But you were right what you said that it sounded like the SEC uh, nullified the law, and that's exactly what I said. And the Ninth Circuit said, no, they didn't. Subsequent to that, we had these obvious abuses that have come out about the backdating, and you have uh, abuse, which is a little harder to detect by them manipulating the stock down and granting the options, you see. And so there's a lot of, lot of shenanigans that, are, that have gone on with these uh, equity grants. Isn't part of identifying what's going on, looking into the timing of the calls and the puts? Uh, you mean the, the ones that are traded on the exchange? Yes. Well... It's part of the equation. When I was trading as a market maker, when you saw uh, large orders coming in there to buy or, or sell, uh, you had to be suspicious because that was often the case where they'd go uh, to to front run, as we say, the news or the event. In, in other words, if there was going to be a takeover, they would be front running that by not buying the stock but buying the options ahead of time. And so, th- there's only a certain amount of options that will be sold by the market makers until they go start buying the stock because they got to protect themselves against being put in the trap. You see, so the first point at which the indication of something's up is indicated is in the options. And so some people might think that, well, we look for volume transactions in the options and we'll try to 
use that as our evidence that the stock's going to go up, and so they won't. They'll just go buy the stock by looking at the volumes and the uh, the options, and that has some merit. That's that's a way that uh, people might uh, trade. I never did. Do, you know, I tried to be as risk averse as I could. You know, I used to. If I was going to sell them a bunch of options. I'd go right away and buy the stock and try to uh, hedge the position. John, don't you think that when you short a stock, it should be illegal? And explain what it is. Shorting stock involves, well, there's two ways. One, a short sale of the stock involves a person who, uh, for whatever reason, he wants to make a bet that the stock is going to go down, okay? And so what he does, he he might sell all the stock he owns, or if he sold all the stock, then he wants to get where he is actually in a position to make a profit if the stock goes down. So what he'll do is he'll go borrow somebody's stock that does have the stock, and he will sell that share or those shares to the public. And whoever buys it, We'll buy it from you, and you deliver the shares that you borrowed from somebody else. Okay, so what happens is that if the stock is 50 when you make the short sale and the stock goes to 45, you, in fact, sold some sh- uh, 1,000 shares, perhaps, of, uh, that you borrowed at 50, and you sold it at 50, and now if it's at 45, you buy it back, and now... You just deliver the shares back to the person you borrowed them from, okay? So you'd make five points. I wonder why they wouldn't get anything. Well, <laughs> just because you borrowed it, I mean, it's so bizarre, isn't it? Well, You're borrowing something you don't even own. Well, that, that's how that's a that's a regular way short sale, and it happens all the time, okay? But now, what has gotten the uh, criticism uh, over the last years has what the is what they call naked short selling. Okay, now naked short selling is when you make that short sale of that 1,000 shares or 10,000 shares or when these guys are trading on inside information, they do a large trade, okay? So if you shorted that that 10,000 shares at 50 and and you might have been looking for somebody to lend it to you and there's nobody around that's lent it because they all lent it out to other guys, okay? And so if you short it, Without borrowing it, then you don't deliver to the buyer, and he he's waiting for you to buy uh, to receive delivery, perhaps. But you know, all of this stuff is done in back doors at the firms, and they don't care too much about the fact that the the guy didn't receive delivery. They might get excited about the fact that I didn't deliver, okay? But uh, anyway, if you make the short sale, which is a bet the stock's going to go down, and you do not borrow. That is what they call naked short selling, and that's what all the commotion was about uh, preventing people from shorting the uh, financials uh, about two years ago. And, uh, you know, the blame for the collapse of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns was partly or substantially put on the naked short sellers. Now... Uh, who is allowed to make naked short sales? Well, you and I are not allowed. I mean, if I wanted to go short a stock and I can't borrow it, they're not going to let me short it. So who's allowed? 
the market makers are allowed. The options market makers are allowed under the law to make naked short sales. Now, who are the uh, market makers these days? Well, you have, it's not like little guys like me or even Blair uh, or other individuals or little small groups. It's large operations like Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and hedge funds that have billions of dollars, okay? So those are the ones who have an exemption to the naked short sale rule. And they're the ones, if there was, short, if there was naked short sales taking place, then they're the ones who did it, okay? Now, another form of naked short selling is a buying of a put. If you buy a put, you're effectively making a bet the stock's going to go down. Now, uh, so you didn't borrow any stock from somebody if you bought a put, you see. So uh, I wrote a couple of articles about how uh, uh, buying a put is similar to, uh, to making a naked short sale, and people say, oh, no, no, no you're wrong. And I said, look, man, you know, I traded a lot of options as a member of the Pacific and the uh, CBOE. And I know there's not much difference from buying a put and shorting the stock uh, and naked short selling the stock. So, uh, But anyway, there was a lot of uh, talk about Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers being collapsed by a, a cabal of, uh, of naked short sellers and guys who were rumor mongers who were putting out Rumors about uh, Bear Stearns being uh, in trouble and the naked short sellers working with them, and they just ha hit the stock in big, big numbers, and uh, and then they put out more bad stuff, and it eventually uh, caused a run on Bear Stearns, and nobody would lend them any money, and it collapsed them all overnight. That is the story. That's the official story as to what collapsed Bear Stearns, and similarly, uh, Lehman Brothers, although Lehman Brothers didn't collapse as fast as Bear Stearns. Okay? Now, I think that whole scenario is just a boogeyman. You see, whenever they pull off these uh, events, in, in my view, like 9-11 uh, <laughs> and the Kennedy assassination, they all have a boogeyman out there already. Because they, you know, they have to be able to blame it on somebody real quick. Because the people are going to say, "Well, who did it?" You know, and it might be uh, the government, or it might be some bankers. <laughs> so they have boogeyman's ready. And so, in my view, the naked short sellers, together with the wrong, uh, the uh, uh, rumor mongers, were the naked short seller, were the uh, were the boogeyman in uh, the takedown of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. Okay, and so, oh, you have uh, uh, this fellow by the name of Patrick Byrne. Patrick Byrne was, uh, it still is apparently, uh, I'm not really following it, but he's the CEO of a company called Overstock. Now, he seems like a nice fellow, you know. I think he's got a degree in philosophy for some, from some university, so it can't be that bad if you've got a degree from a Ph.D. maybe in philosophy. So uh, he claimed that his company was the target of 
some of these naked short sellers who ganged up on him when and unjustifiably knocked his stock down because they were doing naked short sellers and they were uh, together with these rumor mongers led up by a guy out of uh, Arizona called uh, Car Bettis of uh, Gradient Analytics. Now, I've talked to uh, Car Bettis, and I think he's a victim of being charged of not being charged, but being uh, claimed that he was part of a uh, uh, a uh, cabal that took down uh, several stocks and this and that. And incidentally, to show you what a small world it is, uh, Overstock sued Car Bettis and another outfit uh, in Marin County uh, in the uh, in Marin County Superior Court. I don't know if you know where Marin County Superior sure Court do. is. Sure do. You do? Yes. Yeah, there's, uh, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright building right in the city se- civic center. Okay? Uh, I've had some dealings with the Marin County Superior Court myself because I used to live in uh, Mill Valley. and uh, Mill Valley is very pretty. Yeah, yeah. I, I lived there uh, when I was trading as a market maker in San Francisco. I lived there and I lived in Sausalito a little, little bit and... I actually built houses after I, I quit trading uh, uh, in 1984. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Overstock sued uh, some people in Marin County Superior Court. And uh, the, the defendants were defending themselves, and it looked like it was going along pretty good. But somehow, the Attorney General for the state of California filed an amicus curiae brief. What does that mean? Well, amicus curiae means friend of the court. Okay? And in other words, it's uh, anybody can file uh, an amicus curiae brief with the court. In other words, if you have some legal uh, interest in the outcome or you have some information or you understand uh, the law, you can go ahead and file a brief saying that you support the defendant or you support the uh, 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 plaintiff in a particular case. Now, somehow, the Attorney General for the State of California, I think it was Mr. Brown, or uh, not sure, but they filed an amicus curiae brief in this case on behalf of uh, Overstock. And I'm saying to myself, now, I know Mr. Brown is not that too interested in some uh, uh, some victims that might have been uh, accused of, uh, uh, of something unfairly, and the rumor and the rumor mongers and the naked short sellers took him. You know, to me, some somebody put some political pressure on Brown to give these guys an amicus curiae brief from the attorney general. And whenever there's a, whenever you have substantial elements of the government giving you a uh, amicus curiae brief against you or, before, uh, or on your behalf, it helps you a whole lot because the court uh, will give a lot of deference to the attorney general of the state of California if they're saying, well, we support this view and uh, this, you know, uh, it's kind of like, I tried to get the uh, SEC to file an amicus curiae brief on my behalf 
when uh, when I filed this lawsuit against uh, Mr. Samuel, uh, saying this and that, and they wouldn't do it. <laughs> but uh, and I, I mean, I figured there was a little chance that I would get them. But but nevertheless, that case was uh, was uh, was settled, where Overstock won, and uh, so he got a victory. Uh, promoting this idea that uh, gradient analytics was uh, part of a systematic uh, naked short-selling operation uh, together with rumor mongers. But uh, Mr. Uh, Byrne from Overstock had a blog where they were all uh, promoting themselves about being wonderful defenders of the small companies and... uh, uh, trying to stop these naked short sellers who were bringing down American capitalism. So contextually, back to the boogeyman, the whole point of you sharing this was you were talking about there's always a boogeyman somewhere. So what do you think brought down Lehman and Bear Stearns? I think, and I'm not alone on this, uh, I think that it was a conspiracy to bring down Bear Stearns and to, to eliminate the, uh, the competition for... Goldman and uh, J.P. Morgan, and uh, I think they got short the stock, okay, naked or, or some other kind of way, and they were long puts. They, in other words, they knew. I mean, Bear Stearns was trading at 70 on uh, March the 10th, 2008. By March the 17th, it was trading at $3.70, Okay. Now, there were, that's, a, that's the most dramatic drop that I've ever seen in a stock other than maybe just some penny stock. And, and it, you know, Bear Stearns dropped from 70 to below 4 within a week. And there were people, when that stock was 70, they were buying puts, giving them the right to buy the stock, to sell the stock at 20 when it was trading at 70, and those puts only had a week to go. In other words, they had to get a move from 70 to below 20 within a week. <laughs> Otherwise, their bet on the buying of the puts is, goes to zero. Now, uh, I contend that all of that put buying of, of the four out of the money puts was done by people that had inside information about the collapse of Bear Stearns before it was going to happen, okay? And uh, uh, it was also the case that the uh, options exchanges, uh, pursuant to the request of a customer of Citigroup, and that's what they told me. They wouldn't tell me who the customer was. They told me that the the so-called designated primary market maker in the options was Citigroup, and they they told me. You see, Citigroup requested of the exchange to come out with some options that have never traded before to give people the right to sell the stock at twenty and fifteen and twenty five and as low as five. There were so they came out with brand new options with these extremely low. Uh, strike prices. Are you listening, ladies and gentlemen? Please 
stay tuned. I'm just checking in with the audience. Please stay tuned. Are you listening to John and getting it? Please stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. Continue, John. Okay. The exchanges, I asked them, well, why did you come out with it? They said, well, uh, they requested it. And so they requested and they accommodated their request, which to me, they should have known, and I think they did know, that they were going to be buying puts. And so they bought loads of puts with these very low strike prices, which, I mean, I could probably line up 100 ex-market makers that would all say that they would guarantee that that was insider trading, okay? Uh, because why would anybody pay, uh, buy a put with the right to sell a stock at 20 for the next week when the stock's trading at 70? So basically, insider trading is legal to designated market makers, but it's illegal to everybody else. No, no, no. Insider trading is not legal for anybody. Supposedly. Huh? Well, that's the story. Well, you know, you, you, uh, no matter who you are, you can't uh, trade if you have non-public material information. That's a criminal offense, and it's a civil offense. But obviously, there are a chosen select group that do get to play and do this. And even though it's illegal, they are still granted the okay, is my point. Well, yeah, they don't, like, if Patrick Burns was right about these naked short-selling sellers collapsing Bear Stearns, why didn't the government investigate and find those uh, naked short-sellers who collapsed Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and uh, ask them why they made those short sales, why they bought those puts with the strike price of 20 when the stock was 65. Well, how close is the U.S. government with Goldman Sachs? Oh, I don't know. Well, there's a portal, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that there's a collaboration and cooperation. It has oh, yeah, to I, be. I agree. It you has know, to be. James Diamond, and uh, you know, I'm telling you stuff that when I put up on my website, they tagged me, but he was on the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York during the time that Bear Stearns was collapsed. Now, Jamie Dimon was also the CEO of J.P. Morgan. So there's a federal criminal statute, Title 18, Section 208, which makes it a felony for him to make decisions that favor himself or the company he works for while he's on the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank. Okay? But he did that, and he owned 3 million shares of J.P. Morgan at the time. Okay? And the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where he sat on the, Fe uh, the board of directors, made a loan, made two loans. One was a $25 billion loan to Bear Stearns, and another one was $30 billion of dollar loan to J.P. Morgan, 29 of which was non-recourse. So they made, and the, you know, uh, Bear, uh, Bear Stearns didn't get any look or what, they weren't able to touch that $25 billion at all because that $25 billion was made to, to Bear Stearns to, to facilitate the deal. So they, there was two loans. One was $25 billion 
which went to Bear Stearns, then that $25 billion ended up with J.P. Morgan, and another $30 billion that was lent directly to J.P. Morgan. So $55 billion ended up that went from the Federal Reserve Bank to New York, of New York, where James Diamond, the CEO of uh, uh, J.P. Morgan was sitting on the board of directors. So he made decisions which benefited uh, J.P. Morgan and himself because he owned 3 million shares of stock. Okay? Now, that's a felony. Now, uh, uh, in fact, a Senator Dodd was asked on a radio show, what, uh, what does he think about that? And he says, it doesn't look uh, kosher to me. And I'm going to ask him about it at the hearing on April the 3rd or the 5th or whenever it was. But Senator Dodd didn't ask Jamie Dimon about it when he had the chance to. You see, uh, so that's the kind of that's the guys who were involved in the takedown of Bear Stearns. You see, there was so much money. Now, this 55 billion dollars is interesting because. It was collateralized by the unencumbered assets of Bear Stearns. Now, how can you be bankrupt if you got unencumbered assets worth $55 billion, which the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is willing to take as good collateral for making a $55 billion loan that lands in the hands of J.P. Morgan? Well, how can Bear Stearns be broke when they have unencumbered $55 billion of, of assets? Okay? Because J.P. Morgan didn't put up any assets to make that loan. They made, uh, they made a $30 billion loan based on uh, collateral from uh, uh, Bear Stearns, 29 of which is non-recourse. In other words, you don't have to pay it back. <laughs> so it's really okay? a gift. Yeah, it's a gift. Twenty-nine billion was a gift to, uh, to J.P. Morgan. Plus, they made a loan to Bear Stearns for twenty-five billion, which went to uh, uh, J.P. Morgan. So J.P. Morgan got flushed with fifty-five billion dollars, and they actually bought uh, Bear Stearns at a bankruptcy price. You see, so this was, in my view, planned because they couldn't pull us off in a matter of days. You see, and. Uh, I think it was planned months ahead of time, and then, then uh, anyway, I talked about that in my uh, my meeting, my uh, my uh, my article. I wrote that article, and you know that, that article. Uh, I kind of updated it a little bit from what I sent you. You mean it's called Bear Stearns buyout, one hundred percent fraud? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was all. That went all over the world. You know, it was trans. Uh, I saw it translated into about six different languages. You should download this, everybody listening. Download that article and go to optionsforemployees.com. Now, John, yeah, how many trades a day did you used to make, roughly? When, when I was trading as a market maker in Chicago, I was trading about 100 trades a day, which averaged about 30 contracts. So I was trading like 3,000 contracts a day. And for 10, you know, for, oh, well, that was probably when I was in Chicago, maybe a little less at other times. But I was, I, I probably traded more options in more diverse situations at that time than anybody. But again, that goes way back. 
but those were the days when it was easy to make money and uh, as an individual with not too much cash yourself. Whereas uh, nowadays you're playing against guys that have tens of billions of dollars and and uh, they can do what they want. Do you miss it? Well, I miss it. I miss the money, you know. And but uh, it's a lot of tough work, you know. And uh, uh, it's not there now. I thought I, there was days I thought I could always come back and be a market maker and pick up the same money, but uh, it's not there anymore. And there's a lot of uh, real, you know, people who uh, made good money in those days can't do it now because of just it's just it's just highly efficient. And uh, there's, oh, I, I, some people think there's a good bit of uh, insider trading taking place. It, they're very careful to disguise their insider trading. You see, before options were created back in 1973, before the secondary market in options was created, and before the buildup of all the volume they have now, Insiders, to make a big hit, had to get a big move on the stock. In other words, if you knew something was going to happen, whether they were going to have good earnings and the stock was going to go from 31 to 33, well, that's not that big a deal, okay? Whereas nowadays, you have all of these options out there. They can make a lot of money even if the stocks don't move at all. How is that possible? What they do is they sell what they call straddles or we call them premium sellers. They sell puts and calls. And if the stock just sits there, those, the value of those things erode over time. And they can make money even when they know the stock is just going to sit there. And so the whole... Uh, expansion and proliferation of options, that is these listed options, provides a, a vehicle where insider traders can exploit uh, a lot greater than it used to be, say, 40 years ago, okay, when you didn't have listed uh, traded options. And uh, so, in other words, if... if uh, uh, if you're a if you're a market maker now with billions of dollars, uh, and you're tied in with Goldman or Morgan Stanley or Citigroup or Merrill or whatever, most of those investment bankers have a good rapport with the CEOs and the CFOs of the companies that they're investment bank bankers for, and they're not gonna those. Uh, the CEO and the CFO, they're not going to develop something that they're going to announce without the investment banker to know ahead of time, okay? And, and so if they know that there's nothing in the works for the next three months and there's, you know, not, nothing's really going to happen to the company because, well, you know, uh, earnings are about expected and, uh, you know, this and that. We, we don't see any real movement in the stock. Well, if that's the case, they tell that to the, the investment bankers and they, they're market makers and they go sell a premium. In other words, they make money by trading on that inside information and the stock doesn't even move. 
you, you see. Now, on the other hand, if they have a uh, then in, under negotiations of of uh, whether it's going to be a buyout, the stock's going to jump from thirty to forty-five or something like that. What they'll do is they'll go take off their uh, their, their uh, short puts and their short calls and their uh, uh, and get away from that that position that was dependent upon making money was dependent upon not getting a big move. Okay, so. They just take that away and they go ahead and maybe reverse it a little bit by buying puts and buying calls where now they'll make a profit if they get a big move, okay? So you have a lot of, lot of uh, in my view, a lot of cheating like that goes on. It's really hard to uh, detect. And, and the, uh, the SEC, they're not going to go after it. Uh, so even with the detection, there's not much in the way of enforcement or interest in that area. Right, 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 right. I think that uh, that's the, the nature of the game right now, and there's so there's a lot of interest in uh, trading options and brokerage firms are out there promoting options and how, strategies to do this and this and that. But uh, most of those people that are listening to them that are not the insiders and not the market makers, they're losing money because <laughs> it's like it's just a big gambling game, uh, and you're playing against guys uh, that, are, that, that where the game is fixed. There's a lot of difficult and traumatic challenges going on around the world in geology, with weather, with infrastructure. Japan is an example. Yeah. It's so interesting how something starts in one place, but it's connected to something else, and then it affects something else. It's like a chain reaction of negativity. So there's got to be people poised in disaster trading buying puts and shorting stocks don't you think that very well may be you know uh, uh, I really don't know how to find that out but there's got to be you have provided this depth of insight into what goes on and the triggers and how you can detect it and where enforceability is and isn't so there's got to be people that are poised that have the knowledge that you do but are misusing the access the information and their position to make money in disasters. As far as what they're doing right now, you, you don't know, you know, because it's like, why is the stock market going up in the face of the uh, disasters, you know, and the un- unemployment? Maybe it's not an organic organism anymore. Maybe it was never organic. Maybe the whole stock market is a synthetic organism, and therefore there are all kinds of synthetic efforts that can be made and causal agents that can come in to make things different than the way, let's say, companies are organically. It's not a true representation of what's going on, is my point. Oh, oh yeah, I agree. I think it's artificially propped up. Exactly, exactly. You know, that's, uh, I think the Federal Reserve Bank or the Treasury probably owns more stock than anybody, you, you see. And uh, I think that they are artificially uh, buying stock to try to... Uh, uh, Save the game, you know, and keep the game going and keep the people, uh, hooked. Yeah, they, because to me, you know, uh, I wouldn't own any stocks. <laughs> I don't own any stocks. I mean, I'm trying to tell people, uh, how to reduce risk in, in, in a very fish, efficient way. I don't tell them to sell their stocks, or I'm just saying, hey, you know, if you have a bunch of stocks here, this is the risk you have. Be conscious of it. Be 
consider reducing it. And you can do it efficiently this way. And so uh, I think what the, the, the bigger, the guys who control everything, if you will, they want people in there flat out gambling uh, with, uh, with the long stock. For example, and I'll tell you why I have a view, and this might sound crazy, but if you owned, let's suppose you personally owned a good bit of shares either in your personal account or in your IRA or something like that, of BP, okay? okay. Wouldn't you be a la- little less critical of BP because you own a bunch of this stock? Most likely. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, we're sorry, but don't destroy the company because I own a bunch of it, right? And right. I think that that's the case with all of these companies. You know, Walmart puts – how many – uh, small retailers that Walmart put out of business. But if you, uh, yeah, and I, and if you're a fan of small businesses, you've got to be critical of Walmart. But if you own Walmart, well, then you can't be too critical because you're making some money off of it. You, you see, in uh, the same way with uh, the the, uh, the drug companies, you know, Merck, Baxter Lab, you know and new, uh, companies that own nuclear power plants. Every, it's, all, uh, it's all owned by uh, mom, mom and pops and pension plans, and now they got them all uh, owning uh, employee stock options. You see? It's like with this employee stock options, it's like the company has replaced the family. Pretty heavy. Yeah, Pretty and, heavy. And I think that's really what's going on. and Because uh, I, I don't think that anything that's done of, of a major nature has not been tested out uh, uh, as far as the impact. In other words, if they decide to promote something like, you know, like this this phenomena of uh, equity compensation and employee stock options, it's not just in Silicon Valley. It's all over the world. Now, I don't think that that phenomena it's so beneficial to the employees and the companies to make it uh, all over the world. I think it's being promoted for for a larger reason. <laughs> and it's to make the, you know, if there's a movie out there called Brave New World, which is based on Huxley's book, which uh, I think that's what we're coming to. I have a question for you about an example of a stock dropping massively. When the publicity came out that Steve Jobs was ill, yeah, I think it was a year ago or a year and a half ago. I don't remember the exact time frame, but somewhere around there, the stock dropped a hundred points. And it's a strange question, but who benefits from inducing a panic in what's going on with the company and the stock? Well, if you were short and the stock drops a hundred points, then that's you know you're going to benefit. By the way, I love Apple, and I'm not accusing them of anything, but I just wanted to ask you, I remember when that happened, and I said, wow, it was pretty profound, and yet great products, great leadership, incredible innovation, and people got scared so quickly. Well, I think the stock is one of the uh, the best performers uh, over the last few years. I, I think it's 3.30 now. I think it was 3.60 a few days ago, and uh, heck, uh, in March of, 
less than 100. You know, so uh, it, I think the price of the stock reflects uh, the quality of the company and its success. And uh, uh, but I, uh, you know, in a, an event like that, I, I don't. I think that the information that's coming out is coming out, uh, and I don't think they're artificially releasing it. I don't think that either. I just wanted to ask you about an example of, one, the release of that information a year to a year and a half ago, and it really woke me up about how much a stock price can change by perception, that it's artificial. It's about perception. Still a great company, still a great leader, still a great entrepreneur. You know what I'm saying? But the perception is, oh, my God. Oh yeah, that, that's right. And uh, I, I, don't, I haven't followed Apple that much. I've, I've, I actually wrote a couple of articles about it. For if people uh, had employee stock options for Apple, and they have, they were faced with either to exercise the employee stock options and sell the stock or hedge them. And I said they should hedge them, and uh, and compare that to the other strategies that people uh, say that they. I, I, I so I, that's why I'm at least familiar with the stock. But as far as I'm not out there trying to analyze the sure. fundamentals. I don't even know what they are. I understand. Are. I understand. Uh, Do you think that in the years to come, from now into the future, that more CEOs and CFOs and principals in a company are going to want to try new models of setting up employee stock options? Are you interested in setting up new models? Do you think there's new hybrids or better ways to create opportunity for employees actually I'm, I'm working on an article or, or it's, it's a it's a business method and uh, where they modify the uh, the traditional employee stock options a little bit making it such that the uh, grantees that is the employee or the uh, uh, sometimes consultants uh, have a few extra choices as to how they settle their employee stock options rather than just the one way because the the way they've set it up and it's I guess it's worked uh, pretty good for them but it it makes it difficult for the uh manager you know who might have a couple hundred thousand or 300 400,000 uh of options how to best manage that they don't his choices are limited Right now, and I I proposed just recently, and I, I haven't even finished writing it up. I'm working on it with this other fellow who's a, who's a professor at the University of Alabama, uh, uh, where uh, I call it uh, multiple choice employee stock options, and it gives the uh, employee that has the options a choice of of receiving the full amount of stock or having, upon exercise, receiving less than the full amount and getting some extra options, uh, making it easier for him to uh, manage the positions and without raising the cost to the company. God, that would be a great problem to solve. Well, I I think I solved it. It's just a matter of whether... uh, I can get companies to to be interested in that. I think it's like anything, John. You get it started, you get a couple of great companies to cooperate and to utilize it, and it starts a new wave. 
Yeah, well, I hope so, because uh, it's been a drag trying to get people ahead. Well, maybe they don't understand it, kind of like a lot of people barely understand buying metals to hedge against inflation, <laughs> against yeah, currencies, right. you know? I, I agree, you know, and especially when you get into options, uh, and then when you get into employee stock options where you have some restrictions and and the companies don't want you to do this, and I'm telling them, hey, you ought to do it, you know, the company... They might not want you to do it, but they you have a contract with them, you see. And so so anyway, I, I've been working on this, and uh, I'll send you to that. Uh, send you uh, some more on that as uh, we finish the, uh, the fine points of it, and maybe we'll have another discussion. That would be great. Well, listen, I've so much appreciated you being on the show today and taking your time to illuminate what's going on and your background and to share the insights that you've gleaned over the years. And don't be discouraged. You're working on new things, and we really appreciate you being here. Kim, I I appreciate you inviting me, and I'm tickled to death to have a chance to talk to uh, you and your viewers. And I'm sure they're a good good lot because I see some of the other people uh, that have presented themselves. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to John Olegas, the owner and principal consultant for Truth in Options. And you can reach him by going to optionsforemployees.com. We hope that you'll join us at another time, and thank you so much.